0: From Nordic Institute and the Sault Ste. Marie Innovation Centers Rural Agri-Innovation Network, we're committed to promoting resilient Northern Ontario communities. The Paxac project is all about exploring the essential relationships, attitudes, and mindsets that Northern Ontario communities need as we adapt to change and challenges. Here is today's host, Dr. Sean Meats. Today's episode is the second in a three-part series looking at housing in Northern Ontario and some of the creative ways communities are responding to new and chronic challenges. In the last episode, we heard about Monterey Gardens and how changes to government approaches to housing affordability have contributed to shortages today, which have been exacerbated by the present housing crisis. In today's episode, we'll look more closely at the present state of affordable housing. And to get a sense of some of the more recent challenges and also some of the innovative solutions that have been developed recently, I sat down with Luke Dufour, Councillor for Ward 2 in Sault Ste. Marie and Chair of the District Social Service Administration Board who also works in the construction industry.
1: Uh, thanks for having me, Sean. My name is Luke Dufour. I am the Ward 2 City Councillor for Sault Ste. Marie. I'm also the uh, chairperson of the District Social Services Administration Board, um, which oversees uh, the delivery of social services in Sault Ste. Marie.
0: So the situation that we see with housing in Sault Ste. Marie has changed significantly over the last few decades in particular, last couple. Can you describe some of the changes that you've witnessed in your lifetime living in Sault Ste. Marie related to housing and and, uh, the demand for housing?
1: Sure, yeah. Uh, I think uh, Sault Ste. Marie's been a really kind of interesting case study, especially over the last decade. What we've seen is, is uh, you know, you, you can frame it a lot of different ways, but in terms of rental housing specifically, Sault Ste. Marie was a bit of a, a undiscovered treasure for a number of years, where when you look at the growth in, in the relationship between rents and actual capital costs of buildings, Sault Ste. Marie 10 years ago was a really, really good place to own rentals because you were able to pay your building off, you know, usually in about 10 to 15 years, which especially in the current world of of rental real estate is pretty amazing. We had those kinds of market dynamics in Sault Ste. Marie up until basically the first six months of of 2020, where, uh, you know, it's almost like we were discovered. Uh, so to speak, and we saw a huge influx of of newer companies and investors moving into Sault Ste. Marie that really changed the dynamic, and it changed the dynamic province wide. But in Sault Ste. Marie, I think it was a big shock to the system, one that I don't know the community has totally uh, totally wrapped their minds around yet.
0: That's really interesting. So, so when you talk about it being a shock to the system, do you think what what do you think might be some of the factors that made it such a so difficult to absorb that shock?
1: Well I think one of the biggest factors is is to be honest, the size of the construction industry in Sault Ste. Marie. So as part of our official planning process, we do a lot of population projections for the city. Some of them maybe more ambitious in their analysis than others. But one like some of the numbers that I've seen that kind of jived with me as being really reasonable was that Sault Ste. Marie with the retirement and aging of baby boomers could expect to see population growth of three to five thousand people over the next five to ten years. What's driving that is the sociological dynamic of, of baby boomers retiring and aging. So when that happens, demographers generally tell us that for every baby boomer to retire, they need to be replaced by at least one and a half people that that'd be uh, one to take their job that they were doing, assuming that job doesn't disappear. And then at least another half uh, full-time equivalent person that would be able to to serve their healthcare needs, right? So we know that uh, (laughs) Sault Ste. Marie does have a a higher proportion than than average in Ontario of, of baby boomers. And so just Taking in those numbers and then the, the very predictable birth and death rates, that was where we arrived at the three to five thousand figure, which I think is 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 pretty pretty accurate. According to those population estimates, Sault Ste. Marie needs to be building somewhere between three and four hundred units per year, just in order to house that growth in our population that's projected. And what the issue is there is that historically over the last few years we haven't built anywhere near three to 400 units a year. The last time Sault Ste. Marie was building residential units at that rate was uh, probably sometime in the eighties. I believe Sault Ste. Marie's typical amount of, of residential units that we build in a year over the last five years, your average, I don't have the exact number, but it's probably somewhere closer to 75 to 90 units a year. So, What we're faced with is the prospect of of needing a construction industry to grow by a factor of five times its current size at a time when all around us in our province, most other cities and construction kind of company ecosystems are, are faced with the exact same challenge. It stands to reason from that, that the supply of housing in Sault Ste. Marie uh, is going to be constrained significantly as our population grows and construction of, of new units cannot keep pace simply because of the size of our construction industry.
0: Thinking about the, the, the change in the city's population too, I mean, looking back to the late 1980s, we, we had around 82,000 uh, residents within the city. And we didn't see as significant a, uh, a housing crisis at that time, but now we've, you know, our population is rising, having rebounded from around 70,000, but we're still sitting at, you know, between 72 and 74, depending on you know, what line you draw. What happened? What's the difference there that has led to housing or, or contributed to housing scarcity?
1: Well, I think over those 20 to 30 years, I think you did have a significant amount of houses and units that came out of the market and were not replaced places weren't kept up places were demolished uh things like that but what you also had is that over those 30 years maybe not so much in the last eight years or so but there was definitely a time there where densification really was not a priority for the city And so a lot of the units that were created were created around the periphery of the city and into uh, not a lot of purpose-built rental housing either until the introduction of the uh, Rental Housing Community Improvement Plan. So I I think those two factors kind of help to explain where that gap exists.
0: Can you tell me about that Rental Housing uh, Community Improvement Plan?
1: Sure. That was the community improvement plan that I believe the city brought forward somewhere around 2013, I'm guessing. And at that time, Sault Ste. Marie was actually approaching a rental vacancy rate of uh, close to zero percent, which is actually really, really bad news for tenants. In a very in a rental market where there is very low vacancy, tenants don't have a lot of leverage versus landlords to be able to have better control over the quality of their unit or the level of rent because there's there's really nowhere else for them to go. So uh, at that time, the planning department decided that they wanted to target a growth in rental housing and they introduced basically a four-year declining tax rebate for any new rental housing with four units or greater being built within the entire city and that resulted in a number of of new apartment buildings going up and the vacancy rate going I believe we're somewhere four to six percent now which is is a healthier level you know anything above six percent and you're probably having landlords with a lot of vacant units which isn't necessarily good either that was a, a I believe a, a very successful program, one that uh, I think City Council later this year will be deciding whether or not to extend.
0: More recently, the City and the District Social Services Administration Board, or DSAB for short, has been more innovative in response to a growing need and stagnant federal and provincial investment. The DSAB is responsible for overseeing social housing and a variety of other social services.
1: Sault Ste. Marie became, uh, as far as we know, the first municipality in Ontario to diversify its housing portfolio into market rent buildings as a means of revenue generation to help offset uh, future growth in capital costs in in rent controlled housing. That was a program that was really great to get going before the housing crisis as well, because we were able to acquire about $10 million worth of rental housing at kind of those pre-COVID prices. And the goal of that program is to kind of create like a, a municipal housing dividend so that we can start leveraging our expertise in the housing corp and use that growth and revenue to reinvest back into affordability and all of the social housing needs that we know we'll have in the future.
0: Here's Mike Natto, CEO of the Sault Ste. Marie DSAP, who explains it further. Uh, so we recently purchased 124
2: units across the city that are paying full market rent. They're not a subsidized or social housing. The surplus, we call it not profit, but the surplus that we drive for that is then paid a dividend to the DSAB and allows us to reinvest it back into social housing. So rather than just going to the uh, municipal tax base or the provincial coffers to try to get more money to do things, we're really trying to also generate our own uh, revenue streams. So then we're in complete control of how that money gets uh, reinvested back into the community. And last year was our first year doing it, uh, and there's a report going to our board tonight. But the first year, we, we provided a dividend back to the D7 of $145,000. Uh, so the, we know the model works, and it's strengthened in our balance sheet.
0: Here's Luke again, who explains some of the misconceptions that the public has about the affordable housing system in Ontario, which helps underscore just how significant this change is especially as it comes to the DSAP building and owning its own units in the future?
1: The private sector doesn't and can't and won't ever build affordable housing on their own. It's never happened and it's never going to happen. Anytime a private sector development, and this is in Sault Ste. Marie and other places, advertises itself as including affordable housing, quote unquote, the affordable portion of the housing is always paid for by the government. (laughs) And they don't always say that, which drives me crazy because it Mm -hmm. perpetuates this PR myth that these developers are including affordable housing out of the goodness of their hearts when they're not. They're literally being paid government grant money to have these units in their development. So Sault Ste. Marie actually, uh, the Sault Ste. Marie Housing Corporation ended this practice, I believe, in 2018. So, before we used to give all of our federal and provincial housing dollars to developers in exchange for them to have a couple of affordable units in their building. The problem with this model is that when those three levels of government would sign the funding agreement to have uh, like a rent geared to income unit in a private development, the only level of government that actually had uh, an escalator clause to make up for the increases in rent on their portion was the municipal level. So what that meant is that the landlord always had a structural incentive to continue to raise the rent every single year. And the provincial and the federal government didn't have any incentive to say anything because their contribution was static. It was the municipal government that always had to make up the difference which didn't matter in the first few years, but now that some of these units are 20, 30 years old, not of the highest quality any longer because they're 20 and 30 years old, they're actually the most heavily municipally subsidized units in the whole system because it was the municipal portion of the rent subsidy always going up. So the logic in kind of shifting gears for the housing corporation was if we're going to be paying the highest amount of subsidy for this unit, why don't we build it ourselves? Why don't we own the asset? And why, then we can invest in the quality of that unit over the lifetime of the building. The first units that we built ourselves were actually the ones on Second Line West. There's, there's two large apartment blocks that were built on the corner of Second Line West and Gouley Avenue in 2019. And so that, that's going to be the model going forward is for us to use those for publicly owned developments. With that in mind now, uh, that's why no one's ever seen any developers in Sault Ste. Marie announce they're building affordable housing because all of those dollars are now going into uh DSAB projects, right? So now developers are building for the market and to build to mo- like modern Ontario building codes are, Incredibly stringent, and the quality of the building that you're getting is far and above better than anything currently built, right? And there's a cost to that. Like, there's a cost to build to premium building codes. Like, you have to use premium materials. You're doing a lot more than you did in years past to build that unit. And so it costs more. And if that cost exceeds what affordable rents are, then the private market isn't going to rent them for affordable prices. And that's the situation that we're in, is that in order to make money on these builds, because of the increasing cost of labor and materials, the amount of rent that's being charged out has increased tremendously. And that's not going to change unless the government, the provincial or federal government, gets serious again about offering grants for affordable housing. 70s and 80s, uh, that was actually how Canada built so much of its purpose built residential housing. Is that CMH, like there were very generous federal grant programs that led to developers building like a lot of the apartments that you look around and see in Sault Ste. Marie were actually built under that kind of regimen. And, and the federal government has made an attempt to start going back that way, but you know, with the rapid housing initiative, they haven't gone as heavy into grants because it costs money. They've tried to do more low interest loans, which unfortunately really doesn't move the needle on the affordability of the project. A a low interest loan is still a cost and still needs to be amortized over the life of the building. If that's all we're putting towards these projects, we're we're not going to end up with the kind of affordability targets that we need to be targeting. As I'm sure you're really familiar with in your work with rain, wages have not kept pace at all with, with economic growth since the 70s and 80s. So that, that affordability gap has just gotten wider and wider and wider.
0: In the years leading up to the pandemic, the DSAB also broke with the conventional approaches to affordable housing in two other critical ways. First, it began donating lots to Habitat for Humanity for their own affordable housing initiatives. So far, Habitat has acquired three lots for its own builds this way. Second, it pulled together several partners to launch a new pilot program to support low-income families who are trying to get into the housing market. Mike Nato explains.
2: The model that you're talking about, what we're looking at doing is, uh, we w- what we are doing, not looking at doing, what we are doing is we're purchasing homes in areas of the community that have a declining uh, tax assessment value. And the homes, Often or, or always, the ones that we purchase them, they, they need some capital repair. They need capital work. So, for example, we bought a, a home on London Street. It was sixty-five thousand dollars. We put another 50, uh, fifty-five thousand dollars into the home, and we hired people in receipt of uh, we hired the college to train people who were in receipt of Ontario Works, and it was an eight to twelve week training program where people would cycle through and they would learn. Uh, Drywalling skill, basic carpentry, uh, some basic plumbing. They would learn those skill sets through a qualified instructor, and then we would find them a job placement at the end of it, and and uh, on they're on their way to to self employed
1: or to to financial independence.
0: Or how many uh, homes have you been able to acquire
1: so far? Three. This was kind of the problem with the housing crisis hit is we were able to buy three houses at what was a good price to be able to have room because the numbers you're playing with, like we were trying to have a cap on the final purchase price of about 115 to $120,000. That was what we figured was affordable for our target families. And so in order to have a renovation budget, you then had to buy a house for less than that, but you had to be able to renovate it within the, that band. Right. So like you could buy an $85,000 house, but then you'd only be able to put 40 grand into it. So you had to make sure it didn't need more than 40,000 worth of work because our construction goal was to make it basically maintenance free for 10 years. So like everyone would have a new roof, new siding, like there would be nothing that could go wrong with the house for 10 years. So it, it became a big challenge once prices started to skyrocket like our house on London that we sold to that first family for 115 houses up and down that street are selling for 180 now. And we bought the house for like 65, I think in 2019. Great for that for the Lebruns for our first family, but challenging to continue to grow the program. So once we finish the next two houses, one's on Brown and then another's on London and we have families there as we look to bring more houses into the pipeline, we may need to look at changing our target numbers. We'll kind of cross that bridge as we come to it. At the end of the day, we're still going to have a bunch of capital to deploy for this program. We're, we're just going to have to kind of wait and see because right now we're seeing like houses that should be torn down selling for sixty dollars to $75,000.
0: The redevelopment of low-income neighborhoods, especially in big cities, has often been seen as gentrification that pushes existing residents out as growing numbers of more affluent landowners raise rents or renovate tenants. Dufour explains a key conscious difference in the policy that balances raising living standards with accessibility for people with low incomes.
1: It's a way of doing gentrification where you're kind of backfilling the people who will benefit from the neighborhood gentrifying with folks who are low income and can then experience that growth in equity.
0: The city was making some critical gains in developing creative local solutions in the face of relative indifference from the federal and provincial governments. Beyond providing affordable housing, it was developing new revenue streams to reinvest in housing and to build human capital at the same time. These weren't the only positive shifts either. Habitat for Humanity built over a dozen homes in the last decade, and other nonprofits, churches, and the local branch of the Royal Canadian Legion partnered with different providers and developers to launch new projects to create more affordable housing opportunities. But just as these initiatives were beginning to abate the housing pressures that had been mounting for the previous 20 years, the pandemic reached the community in early
1: 2020. In Sault Ste. Marie, we've got, we had a lot of housing programs on the go. I guess really what you're asking is it kind of depends on where you date the beginning of this housing crisis. Me personally, I date it to kind of six months into COVID was when I really started to see the makings of a crisis as, as, and, and what I mean by that is I started to see something that was growing beyond the ability of government to really respond to and something that was very, very new. I don't really know what's driving it. I wish that I did. That's more
2: of a an economics question i would uh i would think but i do know and i will say this on the record it scares the shit out of me for my job just because i don't know how people are going to be able to afford to live when ontario works and odsp rates have not gone up whatsoever uh so there's just if it's, it's putting more pressure on the housing system the good news is that, if there is a good news The middle class, so to speak, in my opinion, is starting to feel the hurt. And whenever middle class starts to mobilize a little bit, you would hope that some of the policies the government's going to come up with will start to look holistically uh, and maybe housing will really start like it's starting to get the, the political lens that I do believe that it deserves that hasn't been there for many, many years.
0: In our next episode, we'll look at some of the ways the community has responded to the homelessness crisis that was amplified by the pandemic, and what new measures are being explored for the future to address one of the most vicious problems facing our community in the last century. We'll be joined again by Mike Natto and Paul Gouge from the Reaching Home Program of the Indigenous Friendship Centre in Sault Ste. Marie. So join us again, where we'll be speaking with other Northern entrepreneurs and organizations. We'd love to hear what you think about today's episode. We're on Facebook and Instagram at The Packsack Project. And you can also find us on Twitter at The Packsack Pod. To find more episodes of The Packsack Project, head to nordicinstitute.com, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts.